3: Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger,
1: for the ones who get it done.
0: Football Social Daily. Welcome to Football Social Daily. Bang, smack, wallop. That's the sound of defending Carabao Cup holders Manchester United crashing out of the competition two games at old trafford this week two three nil losses newcastle get their revenge after walking out of wembley empty-handed in february but eric ten haag has overseen the reds worst start to a season since john f kennedy was president of the united states whilst manchester united appear to be fraying at the seams is Maurizio pochettino starting to stitch things together at chelsea We'll get the thoughts on the Potch project at the bridge from a Chelsea fan later on today's show. This is Football Social Daily, the award winning Premier League podcast, and it's on the way next.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Welcome to Football Social Daily. This is the award-winning Premier League show. My name's Niall McCorn and a very good morning to Marley Anderson, Manchester's black and white Marley.
4: Good morning. It's It's a very good morning today, isn't it? Not only are we still basking in the 3-0 victory, Joel's back off holiday as well, so he's picked a great time um, to come back from Barcelona. Saying he's got a cough and a cold, uh, staying off camera because he can't look me in the eye, um, like a true... I don't know, but I was going to say a really bad word there, but I won't, I won't make you bleep it. Um, yeah, just can't can't quite face his, uh, his demons here, can he? Take the Halloween mask
3: off, Joel. It was two days ago. Did, did anything happen while I was away? Oh my. Who
0: invited Sean Dyche on the podcast? <laughs> Seriously.
3: You don't want to see my face at the moment. You'll think I'm still wearing Halloween costumes, but... Um... Yeah, I've been getting horrible messages from all over the office, even had a guy who who doesn't have my number in the office somehow getting my number and sending me a picture of Jack Grealish in Haaland while I was on the Ramblas in Barcelona, so yeah, it's been um, a week that I really didn't need to happen.
0: (laughs) I mean, have you had a chance to watch any of the games, Joel, or have you tried to stay clear and just kind of followed it from afar? Because I know you're on holiday, so obviously you want to enjoy yourself, but sometimes you just can't help it, can you? just dipping in here and there, seeing what's going on.
3: Yeah, so I was just mentioning just prior to the podcast, it's crazy because over the years when people say, oh, you're from Manchester, so you must, which team do you support, City or United? And I say, oh yeah, United. Over the last 10 years, it's been like, oh, Manchester United, wow. Now it's like, oh, Manchester United, oh. And then they just carry on with whatever conversation (laughs) they were going on again. It's Ah. a very different reaction this time around, so I don't like to say anything anymore. But I kept, I watched a little bit of the first 20 minutes of the City game. And then as soon as Haaland scored, I was like, this is going to be an absolute domino effect of a game. I just knew it was going to be a disgusting scoreline. So, yeah, I, I really didn't miss too much, to be honest.
0: Well, I think we should talk about it, get it out of the way, because Marley can't get rid of that smile on his face. And I'm sure you'd rather be put out of your misery, Joel. So come on, let's get <laughs> on to <laughs> it. Manchester United nil, Newcastle United 3, Old Trafford last night in the Carabao Cup. Newcastle through to the quarterfinals, where they'll f- face Chelsea. Whilst Manchester United, their defence of the trophy is over because they are out. What I thought was interesting, Joel, was I saw a guy on social media this morning say that last night was his 1200th Manchester United home game in a row. That's 1,200 times in a row he's been to Old Trafford to watch Manchester United. Could it have been one of the worst performances he's seen in... In that long, long spell of consecutive games, because yesterday was as bad as I can remember United playing under Eric Ten Hag. What did you think?
3: I was going to say 1,200 games. He's literally paid for the Glazers dividend over the last few years. That's a ridiculous amount of money to be putting into the club. But it feels very, very Moyes era. Last night felt like 2013 again, where... Every single team that come to Old Trafford, it it literally felt like we would get rolled over. I mean, even if we played anyone from the Championship, I genuinely expect that they would give us a game at this moment in time. And even you saw it last night when you looked at the team lineups. I know Newcastle had pretty much the majority of their starting eleven on the bench. And I know people were starting to think, oh, that's quite strange of Eddie Howe to do. But for me, it was no surprise at all. It was almost like a given that he should do that because... Newcastle's second team are trying to all five for starting 11 positions and the United 11 are literally so complacent in what they're doing I mean when I was just thinking back to when Ten Hag first came over to England he wanted assurances over the transfers and he wanted autonomy because upstairs is. a absolute mess, now I'm starting to think what a ridiculous decision that was because some of his big signings last night you look at Anthony for 80 million Casemiro for 70 million all these guys are just looking like real poor choices in the transfer department, obviously it takes nothing away from the Newcastle performance but right now I remember in the Moyes era when Wilfred Bonnie scored that goal in the FA Cup third round at Old Trafford and every game just felt like an inevitability, loss, loss, loss but again, everyone's, everyone's calling out Ten Hag and okay, rightly so. But how many times do you want to spin this manager roulette wheel? It's been spanned seven times already now and everyone's expecting a different number to come out. It's never going to happen under this current regime ever. And that's the reason why I'm thinking it.
0: I understand what you're saying, but also we mentioned this last week before you went to Barcelona, which was Eric Ten Hag still needs to shoulder some of the responsibility because I still don't understand what the style of play has been this season from Manchester United. It's been erratic. It's been disjointed. There's been no clear evidence from a neutral's perspective as to what the style of play is when you watch a Manchester United game. Me and Marley spoke about the results that United have had in the Premier League this season. Five wins, five defeats. And even the five wins were scruffy wins over Burnley, where Fernandez scores a great goal to win it. Sheffield United was a scrap and they managed to go over the line. Forrest, I think, you were two down and came from two down to win 3-2. And then the first game of the season against Wolves, where Onana clatters the Wolves player and they don't get a penalty. So they're just ones off the top of our heads that we could have thought that we thought of at that time. So Eric Ten Hag, as much as he is clearly in a difficult position and there are questions over the ownership and the way that Manchester United is modelled... There needs to be some element of responsibility from the manager, doesn't there? Because at the end of the day,
3: he's the one on the training pitch every day and he's the one that has signed a lot of these players. Oh, 100%. I mean, like I've just said as well, the fact that he wanted so much power over the club and the transfers means that he has to share a brunt of the blame. But when you look at Newcastle and their structure, you know, you've got Dean Ashworth, who was part of the FA and part of such a really good Brighton team. You look at our team and our club and there's no one of that kind of caliber no one that's qualified enough to actually take the reins and transform the entire club and of course I was just catching up. Actually, it's funny. On the Tuesday morning, I tuned into FSD while I was walking back at about 5am to YouTube, absolutely gloating on this start of the introduction on FSD. And I was absolutely frothing at the seas. I was like, let me get on the show right now. Um, it's probably the best thing I didn't get on there, to be honest. But it's just really, I'm resounded. Seriously, I'm not even mad. I'm very resounded to what's happening and I genuinely don't think anything will change.
0: Well, I think that's one of the scariest things is that last night, Marley, Manchester United were 3-0 down. The sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 that were inside Old Trafford last night, there wasn't really a great deal of booing or people that were apoplectic. It was quite placid and almost, as Joel says, accepting and resigned to the fact that this is what Manchester United is now.
4: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was... From a Man United perspective, it was an awful, awful night. From a Newcastle perspective, it was amazing, obviously. You know, seven, seven or eight thousand fans down there, um, making all the noise. There was no no atmosphere from Man United, no singing. Um when they went off at half time, two nil down. If you think about other teams, if if they were in this situation, they would be, you know, <laughs> hundred and hundred plus decibels of booing, you know, you couldn't you wouldn't be able to hear yourself think as you walked off. Think of like Goodison Park or or Villa Park or something like that where it's really, really sort of a good atmosphere. The boos would have been horrendous and there was the most half-assed boo at half time. Like you're 2-0 down in the Carabao Cup after 3-0 after losing 3-0 to your rivals at the weekend and there was just like a Ugh. and like that was it. And I was like Old Trafford is so full of tourists that it just doesn't they don't care they, there's nothing from the crowd that can lift the team and I feel like that could be a way of lifting Man United now um but they, they can't do it and there's there's proper fans in there but they drowned out when there's 70,000 or whatever how many of them are like proper diehard Man United fans I feel like not I feel like less than half are and it's not uh it's not sort of conducive to getting Man United out of this situation and you know on the pitch it was just as bad. You know, they were they were pedestrian Man United. They had a way better starting lineup um than I was. I was a bit mad when I seen the starting lineup I, I seen Kraft playing his first game in, in a year. You're asking a lot of a right back to play centre back after that long uh a timeout. And then Dummit as well obviously um played really well against Man City in the last round. Um, and was fantastic, but again asking him to do it again is is a big ask, but that's where our squad is. We've had so many injuries recently that we we're, we're struggling. We end up playing five fullbacks, no recognized striker and making eight changes and absolutely just walking all over man united the, the philosophy was there because it, it was it was almost a perfect sort of uh, micro like look at what the two teams are. And it doesn't matter who was in the Newcastle team, they knew how to play and they played for each other and they played as a team. They knocked it round. The philosophy was there of, you know, energetic pressing and uh, and sort of quick tempo passing. And you looked at Man United and you were just like, no one, they're just chasing shadows. Casemiro looked like a pensioner. Hannibal just looked like a hatchet man who'd been given, as if he was on a yellow card bonus or something because he was just trying to hurt people because he. Sh- um, and then you you look at the the back line and Maguire and Lindelof were experienced players and they they just couldn't they couldn't take hold of of Man United and make them play has won how many five Champions Leagues or whatever he couldn't get a grip on the team um, and then Anthony and Garnacho didn't get anything out of our fullbacks and you know the the performance was was magnificent from from Newcastle's point of view and we we rightly you know wiped the floor with Man United really.
0: Yeah, Newcastle United obviously beating Manchester City in the round before, then beating Manchester United and getting rewarded with a, a game against Chelsea. So Newcastle clearly looking to try and go one step further than they did last season. Just to continue on the Manchester United tact, because I feel like that's a pretty big story at the moment. Eric Ten Hag was asked after the game naturally about whether he fears for his future in the job. And he said no he's a fighter he's gonna keep going and he's not gonna quit something's got to change though and it's fulham away on saturday joel in the early kickoff and so if manchester united don't get a result there what sort of position does that put eric ten Hag in i'm not suggesting that he should be sacked or he's going to lose his job or anything like that to be honest it feels like until manchester united mathematically can't achieve what they want to achieve this season i can't see them making a change that's just my personal opinion but The heat will crank up and Fulham away, even though they're not doing great this season, it's not the sort of ground you want to be going to on Saturday lunchtime when you're desperate for a win.
3: Yeah, again, I'm not massively concerned about, for example, chopping and changing managers because there's such a deeper problem. But one of the quotes that I saw Ten Hag mention, I think it was just after the City game where he said that he's pretty much abandoned his principles from Ajax because he doesn't quite have the players that are capable of doing that kind of football, to paraphrase. And for me, that's so concerning because, okay, fair credit to Ajax. They're a club that has a really strong identity in terms of how they want to play. But they're all youngsters. It's not like they're all star winners who are the only ones who can adapt to a style of play. He's gone out and paid a lot of money to get the likes of Casemiro, Anthony, a lot of Ajax players, Dutch players, these kind of players who he knows of. And yet still, he can't seem to get play style going and that's what's the most concerning for me how he was brought in to be that progressive almost innovative new manager and then suddenly he says oh i can't be that manager i have to play with the players that i have I'm sorry, but you're the one who's brought the players in. You've targeted the players, you've got autonomy over it. I know it might not be the case that he's had his first, second, third choice, which has literally been the case for every manager that United have had in the last 10 years. I mean, Jose Mourinho kicked up a fuss when he couldn't get the likes of Perisic and Jerome Boateng and he had to get alternatives. It seems like that is the case. Managers have got their hands pretty much tied behind their back in terms of who they can get, if they can get someone. Um, And unfortunately... You're going to see the likes of Newcastle, the likes of City become more attractive of a club to join than United because they've actually got a plan in place to go somewhere. United have got no, they're going backwards, if anything. Everything has gone backwards. So the Fulham game for me, honestly, in my opinion, doesn't change anything. I back Ten Hag 100% because I know there's a top manager in him and while he's there we don't i don't i just want to use the analogy again <clears throat> i don't want to keep spinning this manager roulette wheel because nothing will change at all it's almost insanity to think if we get another manager things will finally click and if we get new players things will finally click on what planet does that make sense there's deeper problems it's like it's like having paracetamol when you know that there's a deeper cause in your body to to sort out it's never going to work so for me whatever the result is I'm still on board with what he's trying to do and I'm pretty much accepting that nothing will change until we have a complete club change. That's the bottom line of it I think.
0: Well Manchester United are out of the Carabao Cup, Newcastle United are through and just to continue chatting about this competition before we move on and discuss Chelsea with Chas from the Chelsea podcast. The competition yesterday we discussed, Marley could open up and Arsenal are out because they lost to West Ham. Everton managed to get through and they're not one of the top Premier League sides right now. Chelsea are through in their are facing your team, but they've been a bit hit and miss, as I'm sure we'll discuss in the next section of the show under Maurizio Pochettino. So in terms of the teams that are through to the final stages, Newcastle looked like one of the favourites along with Liverpool. So you must be feeling pretty confident of getting to the final again, even at this early stage.
4: Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, as soon as we beat Man City, I thought, well, they're the best team in the in the country, so if you if they're out of the competition and you've beat them, you know by by theory you should be very much thinking about going and going and winning it. Um, Liverpool are our bulky team, though, big time. I'm hoping someone takes care of Liverpool. I hope there's a Merseyside derby in the semi final or something, um, and Everton can spring something on uh, on Liverpool. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I said I said in in a group chat last night to uh, some of the lads to play football with was. Just um, this would be probably the hardest run anyone's ever had to win, possibly any domestic competition in in England. I can't I can't remember a run um, as as tough as what we've had. You know, Man City on in the first game of the tournament, Man United away where we'd won I think once in the last fifty years or something like that. I know it's the most terrible version of Man United we've probably seen in the last 50 years, but you've still got to go and get that monkey off your back type of thing. Then Chelsea away, which if we were playing them at the weekend, I'd be confident, but it's in, you know, it's a week before December, um, before Christmas, that game. So they could have turned a corner in that, uh, in that game as well, uh, by that point as well. Um, and then you're looking at, um, you know, who, who else is left after that and you're going to have to play, um you're thinking in one of those two games, you're going to have to play Liverpool, um, and then the other teams in it are, are much lesser than them. You know Everton, uh, Middlesbrough, Port. I think Port Vale, Port Vale, still in it. I wanted Port Vale at home. I'm not going to lie. Um, or was it uh, was it Mansfield beat them? It was one of the two. I think it was Port Vale, but yeah, it's um, it's uh, a murderer's row of of teams we, we would have, we would have had to beat if we go and uh, get back to Wembley again.
0: I think Port Vale have got Middlesbrough, so you know Middlesbrough would be really happy with that draw. <laughs> to be honest, Port Vale won't.
4: They've how many? <laughs> Port Vale won three games now in this competition, two games in this competition, or three. But they've
0: not played anyone higher than the
4: championship, so Port I know, Vale they, would be happy they, with that. They, they'd be gutted. They 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 want to go to Anfield or St James's, don't they? <laughs> and they go and get Middlesbrough on yeah, a Wednesday night. That
0: that is true. But also, imagine if they got to the semi-finals. Because a few years ago, it does sometimes happen in the Carabao. And maybe that's because teams don't take it as seriously as they should, Joel. But a couple of years ago, I say a couple, I think it was 10, when Swansea won it and they played Bradford City in the final and Bradford were in League (laughs) 2. Just, it's weird, this competition, because you never see it with the FA Cup teams getting that far. And we spoke to Jonathan Pierce, the Match of the Day commentator on yesterday's show. And if you haven't listened to that yet, by the way, just scroll back in the timeline to find it. We spoke to him about all sorts of stuff, including the team that he supports, Bristol City, and his time commentating on Robot Wars, which we all loved when we were kids. But he was saying that, you know, he would hate it if FA Cup replays got scrapped. And, you know, there's a lot of games now and football maybe just doesn't quite have the same meaning. I mean, the Carabao Cup is one of the lesser competitions, but it's still a trophy. Um, but we did see a lot of teams making changes last night. A lot of teams, and we
3: often do, and we probably will do even in the quarterfinals. It's the weirdest competition because it feels like as soon as you win one game, you're already at Wembley. Every, every time you have that first game, suddenly you're in the quarterfinals, and suddenly the the um the final gets a little a uh, little bit more closer, but. At the end of the day, for teams, especially like Newcastle, who've gone so long without a trophy, this is a competition that you definitely should be prioritising. I remember last year when some of the bigger teams, like Arsenal, for example, didn't really treat the competition with enough respect. Especially teams that have just not got that, prestige in the history to start developing their trophy trophy cabinet. I think the biggest one was the Tottenham one, um, where they got dumped out of it, and when Ange got dumped out of it in, I think it was August or September time, and I was just thinking to myself, that is such a perfect opportunity to just use that as a springboard to then instill a little bit of belief, but... I mean, for me personally, you know, United have had a really good run in the Carabao Cup over the years, and it's such a great way just to obviously give your fans a Wembley day trip and experience a final and that kind of thing. It is still a massive occasion, but... I think when there's so much money and risk involved in a Premier League campaign, it's just too, like I said, it's too much of a risk for, for example, Manchester City or Liverpool to be expending all of their starting players and then suddenly if they get an injury, that derails their Premier League form. So I can understand it, but then on the flip side, for teams that have not won anything, I generally, is quite bewildering to me.
0: Well, Manchester United out of the competition that they currently hold, the trophy for Newcastle United through. I wonder what Chelsea will be like in a few weeks' time when that game does actually kick off. As Marley mentioned, those two sides facing off in the quarterfinals. We'll talk to Chaz next on Football Social Daily, who's from the Chelsea podcast. We're going to get his thoughts on Maurizio Pochettino and the job that he's doing at Stamford Bridge at the moment. Stick with us and we'll be back with you after this. Welcome back to Football Social Daily, the award-winning Premier League podcast. Now, we've spoken so much about Manchester United over the last couple of weeks, so we're going to take the focus away from the red side of Manchester and bring it down south to the blue side of London, another huge club in the Premier League and another club that maybe aren't quite reaching the heights that they would have expected at the start of the season. Although, we can get the answers to that from a fan's perspective, now with Chaz from the Chelsea podcast who's joining us to talk all things Stamford Bridge. How are you doing, Chaz?
1: I'm good, mate. I'm uh, I'm slightly more buoyed today after the the lads made the quarterfinals of the Carabao Cup. Although obviously the draw hasn't been terribly kind to us, but yes, better than I was on Saturday, certainly.
0: Well, yeah, Brentford obviously turning you guys over at the weekend two 0 in the Premier League, and for some reason with Chelsea at the moment, and you'll be able to tell me probably with more accuracy seeing as you're a supporter. It feels like every time Potch feels like he's getting it together, you go and have a result like Brentford. Is that fair to say? Or is it a bit harsh to say that?
1: I think it's a little bit harsh. I think uh, I have to say this this weekend, the Brentford game was probably the first time that I've saw we probably didn't deserve to win regardless of possession stats and what have you, um, or, or deserve something out of the game. Let's put it that way. Um we It felt like a big step backwards Saturday, I have to say, um, you know, and the very fact that it was a 1230 kickoff might have added to that. The crowd was pro- probably a bit flatter than it might usually be. But yeah, I mean, before that, I think even in the games where, you know, the games where we lost by an odd goal or or, um, or only managed to draw, it did feel like we were doing all the right things. And actually, it was just that we weren't putting away chances, um, which is you know, still a problem, to be fair. Um, This game, it felt like we weren't really making an awful lot of chances. And when we did, we didn't look anywhere near like we were going to score them. It it did feel like a step back to some of the worst worst performances of last year.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll get on to the finishing chances bit in a second. But from the outside looking in, lots of people will see Chelsea as a bit of a basket case at the moment because of the amount of players that have been turned over the amount of money that has been spent. Is there a sense of togetherness within the fan base, as there was a few years ago under different ownership and different management, or is there a sense of split in and amongst the supporters? I'm quite interested to know that.
1: I think it really depends on which part of the fan base you look at. I mean, if you look at the wider fan base, uh, which is obviously comprised of a lot of people who are on Twitter, and uh, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those people who sort of just immediately says. If you're not a a match-going fan, you know, I'm not interested in you. But there are a lot of people with a lot of opinions on Twitter and there is some discontent. Um, I mean, earlier in the season, before we went on a little half-decent run, there were even people saying, potch out, which is just insane. Um, But I think generally speaking, those who are, you know, those of a more patient and sensible uh, um, outlook are all realising that a lot has changed. I mean, a lot—an insane amount of money has been spent. There is that, and possibly not necessarily spent in the best possible way. But um, I think most people do see that this is a very, very young side, and it's one that has got a lot of injuries, um, which is a whole other question in itself: why are so many injuries happening, particularly when so many are happening? Seem to be having on the training ground, but it's—it's um, it's a team that I, I think. In the main, there are enough bright spots in the team and enough confidence that things will get better that actually the, the vast majority of the fan base is positive. And I think also that comes after what was a very bad year last year, of course. So everything looks better than that.
0: Do you think any potential politics amongst the fan base in terms of opinions on whether things are going well or whether things need to be looked at more patiently is because... You know, kids of a certain age, now I call them kids, but lads who are 20, 21 now, who are going to away games, home games with their mates, they've got season tickets, they're getting on the train, they're enjoying themselves following their club. They've only ever known Chelsea to be at the top end of European football winning Champions Leagues, whereas I dare say you're of the age where you remember Chelsea being bought for a quid. So things have changed a lot in that
1: time. And further back than that, I'm afraid. But <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, my first game was the uh, 77, 78 season. So it was the end of the 78 season. Um, so I'm, yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. If you've only, if you grew up supporting Chelsea under, under, in the Abramovich era, then you would have known nothing but pretty much unbroken success. And there's certainly a feeling. Um, I think, I think it certainly comes, that concern comes from the younger element who think what, the, what the hell is going on? You know, we've been much, much better than this, but you know, even, even the older fans, you're, you're. Your expectations change, your perspective changes, and while we tend to be a little bit more patient and have a little bit more perspective on these things, um, you know, I think there's even disquiet with us. I think there's, it's like, well, we want to get this right sooner rather than later. But as I say, s- things do seem so much more better, so much more organised than last year. We do think we've got the right in the main. I think the fan base thinks we've got the right man in in the managerial seat this year, and um, and the team are young and will hopefully gel. Um, pretty quickly. Whether or not we'll actually be able to win anything and keep those younger fans happy in the next season or two or three is another thing entirely.
0: Yeah, people will always look at the money spent on those young players and say, well, Chelsea have spent this much. They should be higher than 11th in the Premier League table. But of course, it isn't always as simple as that. So what's your take on the amount of outlay on the playing staff at the club? Because it was expensive under Abramovich, but under Todd Bowley, it's just gone gone through the stratosphere players like Mudrik, who cost you know upwards of 80 million and is on this extended contract there are a few examples of that do you think that there may be victims of a price tag that they didn't ask for some of these players
1: yeah definitely and i think you know inflation and clubs particularly clubs abroad knowing that you know certain teams have got a bit more budget to spend uh really pushed prices up and i think probably if you look at inflation we probably, we probably haven't spent that much more than we did in, in some seasons under Abramovich. And of course, we've offloaded some um, quite major players for decent amounts of money as well. So the balance isn't quite as bad. I mean, you know, it's easy to look and say, Jesus, 1.2 billion, that's an awful lot of money to spend. But actually, we've recouped a fair amount of it as well. Um, it, I mean, you still a frightening amount of money. And the thing is, it is being spent on, it does seem to be being spent on potential rather than, players who we know are absolutely developed or have um, made an impact in the in the Premier League. I mean, really, the last couple of players that we bought that did that were Raheem Sterling and and Marco Corella, and they've had mixed times at the club. I mean, I, I think they're both a lot better players and a lot more successful even for us than they're given credit for. But um, yeah, so we bought a lot of very young players who have had... A modicum of success abroad, that doesn't necessarily translate. That hasn't yet necessarily translated into major success here, and it is a very. We all know it's a different kettle- fish coming and playing in the Premier League. I mean, you guys would be more uh, aware of that than most, you know. Um, and when so much of the team is young, and so much of the, so many of the players who might have been on the bench uh, or gone out on loan are are having to be used in the first team squad because of injury, I think it's very difficult for for. With those players to sort of come in and be really confident and make an immediate impact
0: what happens though when someone like mudrick maybe gets a bad injury and isn't the same player in a year's time and there's still six years left to run on his contract i mean is that a concern for fans as well
1: yeah i think so i mean <laughs> we're all sort of jamming it to the back of our minds but you know um i mean i take it there are insurances against this um Let's hope it doesn't come to that. I mean, we've got, you know, we, we, if we're talking about injury concerns, we'd probably be looking at, you know, players that we've had. Rhys James is uh, an inspirational captain and a fantastic player, but, you know, seems to have muscles of silk. And um, we lose him so often. Ben Chilwell, again, is, is is out again. You know, so often in the last two seasons, we've had neither of those two available to us, who would pretty much probably be our, our first choice um, left or right back. So you know we there are injury concerns with the guys who were on longer contracts but we we you cross that bridge when you come to it and at the moment you know if we can play Madrid as much as we can we say, I think he's a street player I think he's a confidence player and he was just getting himself into a little run of confidence and and good games and then we lost it we you know we've lost him for a couple of games
0: again yes yeah, quite frustrating i can see where you're coming from with James and Chilwell in particular two players that would get in the england squad every time if they were fit, I think. But obviously that's an issue for Chelsea. And another issue is something you've already referenced, which is the inability to finish off chances. Nicholas Jackson isn't quite the guy at the moment. Obviously Unkunku is another player who's on the sidelines. And I think it would be interesting to see how Chelsea operate when he returns. But I would argue that Chelsea have never properly replaced someone like Diego Costa. And obviously Chelsea have had some great strikers through the years. But since Costa, it's not really happened for Chelsea. They tried Murata, didn't work out. Lukaku, again, that never materialised in terms of his performance. And then Kai Havertz, who scored a winning goal in the Champions League final. But if you take that away, wasn't really quite the guy. Timo Werner played up front for a bit and he got sold on. So it's been really tough to find that centre forward or that person that you can bank on in terms of finishing off the chances.
1: Well, I think of the ones you've mentioned, subsequent to Diego Costa, who was just an animal. And I mean that in the best possible sense. Um, uh, Really Higuain and Murata were the two who came with, you know, who were proper centre forwards. I would would call proper centre forwards. And you would come and came with a, uh, you know, a big reputation. And, you know, Murata has sort of scored pretty much everywhere else he's played, except Chelsea. Um, So it's, it's very odd. Maybe we're not playing to their strengths. Lukaku's the same. Um, And, I think the thing with Jackson, and he's possibly a little bit like Kai Havertz and, and Timo Werner in this, is that he's probably not an out-and-out out number nine. Um, he was a little bit—I yeah, think he played a little bit off that um, for Valencia, and um, um, and uh, he was a, I think he probably would benefit from playing with another striker up there. Um, um, he's. I think he's got. He's got ability. Um, he. His shoulders seem to drop when things aren't going too well for him. He's not an out-and-out number nine, and when we're when what seems to be happening a lot this season is that Chelsea are facing a low block from most teams, and we're having to try and put, uh, score through you know ten players stretched out across the penalty box. And he's not really the man for that. Like Timo, he's one of those players who likes to play on the shoulder of a you know a high defensive line and use his pace to get past them and score, which we saw him do a couple of times in in pre-season. But he's not quite the man for that. I'm not even sure that Nkunku is, but it will be very interesting to see if those two do manage to play together and hit it off when he comes back from his injury, which we hope um, will be before the end of this year.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think Chelsea have spent over a billion and still maybe someone to put the ball in the net is what they need. Do you think that is what they need? And do you think that there will be... Inquiries made over potential new signings in January, even?
1: Yeah, it's insane really that we haven't bought a sort of out and out striker when it was clear that this was a problem at the end of last season and this was before any injuries. Um I mean, I say and Kunku may prove to come in and be that type of player, and it might be that we are because of the defenses that are, you know, because of those low block defenses that we're coming up against, that you know, a big bustling number nine isn't Exactly what we need, but I think we're going to buy one, and I think we should. um And you know that the, the name that keeps coming up—well, there's there's a couple, but the main one that keeps coming up certainly that from from the Premier League is Ivan Tony. I mean, I don't suppose we're going to be the only suitors for him, so we'll have to see what happens. But you know, he's a, he's a proven Premier League scorer and I think he's got something about him that would be very useful and would be in addition to what we already have in the strike force um, department. So. Yeah, I'd be pleased to see him come. Victor Osman keeps getting mentioned as well, whether or not he'll leave um, Napoli is a is a different kettle of fish, but you know, he's another one that's possibly got a little bit more guile about him, not quite to the sort of holy straightforward number nine uh, that might be a bit more useful to us.
0: Pochettino then obviously has got work to do and has quite a big project on his hands. You're... From what I can gather from how you've spoken already today, someone who quite likes him and would like to see him given some time to try and get the job right. That's something that Thomas Tuchel wasn't afforded under Todd Bowley for various reasons, which we won't go into now. Do you think Pochettino does need that little bit of time and how much time do you think before patience begins to wear thin? Because Chelsea can't finish 11th this season even. So I know there's still loads of games to go, but no, they need to be looking upward already, really.
1: Well, I I think it depends whether you're talking about the fan base or the ownership. I mean, I think the fan base will start to get twitchy if things don't start to look up, certainly when we get our injured players back. Uh, I think the ownership are probably more likely to play a long game. It is a different kettle of fish to Tuchel. Um, Obviously, they came in when Thomas Tuchel was here. And I I think it was a mistake to get rid of him, but there are reasons behind that. And I don't think they are simply ones of, um, you know, a few results going wrong. So I think they will play the long game with Poch. I hope they will. Um, we look at Arteta obviously as a, a good example of a, a manager who's been given time and seems to have uh, turned things around for Arsenal. Again, whether or not they actually went, end up winning anything is 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 another question. But um, yeah, I hope he gets. You know, I hope he gets a few full seasons at least because and he starts winning with us because he'll, he'll, he's got the financial backing. He's clearly a talented manager. Um, and there are mitigating circumstances that I think, you know, we should take into account before anyone starts having a little, uh, having a little poppy.
0: Next few games though, Chaz, you've got Man City at the Bridge, Newcastle away, Brighton at home. Then it's Old Trafford and Goodison Park taking us into December. So the next four in particular, sorry, you've got Spurs before that, even before the City game, you've got Spurs who are top of the league. I totally missed that. So you can add another big game onto that list. So Tottenham, Man City, Newcastle, Brighton and Manchester United in your next five or six games in the Premier League. I mean, that's big, isn't it? Do you think that is season defining already at this stage?
1: I don't think so. And I think um, there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, certainly Tottenham City and Newcastle, I think with the best will in the world, the, the pressure is slightly off of us because obviously we're going into all three of those games as underdog. And uh, I think even fan expectation, we'll all go in, we'll all travel hopefully, but whether or not we actually really believe we're going to take too many points on those games is another thing. The other way to look at it is I think we are playing better. This team, uh, this current squad that we have that's fit is playing better against teams who don't go all out to stick 10 men behind the ball and nick and away goal. Um, and, with a bit more space, this team does seem to get um, have slight more freedom to express itself, and I think that will be helpful in these three games. Now, whether it means we can actually come away with any points from them, I don't know. Um, but we get through those games, and then I th- I, I like our chance against Man U. They've they sort of <laughs> taken the pressure they've taken the pressure off us this season by being even worse than us, and um, and Everton. Well, Everton is quite a difficult Goodison's a difficult place for us to go. Always has been, but um again, I think, you know, there's signs that they won't necessarily play a completely, um, you know, try and block us out defensive game. So um, I think the, the, the three games coming up are very hard. And if we come away with them from them with a couple of points, I won't be too disappointed. But I don't think they're season defining. I think there's a lot more football to be played. And I think we will get better results as the season goes on and more players come back to us.
0: Do you know what? It's nice to hear your calmness when it comes to Chelsea because there's a lot of chaos
1: sometimes. If you'd have seen me screaming at the television uh, throughout the second half, <laughs> you may not have said that. But, um, <laughs> you've got to try and yeah. I mean, the main thing is is that you, you do have to try and keep perspective. You do have to take the mitigating circumstances into account. It is very frustrating, but you know we're not at the level of the current level of of Tottenham, Manchester City, and and Newcastle. So you have to have a healthy dose of realism about that. So fingers crossed, we'll come We will, we'll will come away from those games with a couple of points. We'll put in some good performances. We'll get a few players back. And going into Christmas, we'll, we'll be coming up a lot stronger.
0: And of course, plenty of opinions, not just your own, on the Chelsea
1: podcast as well. Absolutely, yeah. So um, uh, if you are a Chelsea fan out there listening, do come and join us. It's me and uh, my colleague Mooch, who's a comedian. Runs his own comedy club in Vauxhall and uh, he's a top lad. So, um, and we always have a guest on, and the guests are are pretty interesting as well, come from a wide range of backgrounds. So, yeah, come and join us. Um, Easily found on all your normal podcast download places.
2: Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast.
0: Nice one, Shaz. Good to talk about Chelsea, actually. We haven't spoken about Chelsea for a long, long time. And I think he's right Manchester United being so bad has taken people's attention away from the fact that Chelsea are 11th. I do wonder whether they'll turn it around under Pochettino. That run of fixtures that we spoke about, Spurs, City, Man United, that'd be interesting to see whether those two teams have picked up since this conversation but some really big games for the Blues to come and don't forget you can find that podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts if you are a Chelsea fan worth checking it out it's called The Chelsea Podcast you can find it on all podcast platforms that is it for another episode of Football Social Daily today though we'll be back again tomorrow as we look ahead to the weekend's Premier League action it's the final Premier League match day before yet another international break it feels like we've only just seen the back of the last one but after this one is done Fear not, we are then clear of international breaks until 2024. So the Premier League will kick back into gear again, and I'm sure it will be exciting. So all of the big talking points will dissect on this show. If you missed our episode yesterday with legendary commentator, match of the day, Robot Wars, etc., Jonathan Pierce was our guest on yesterday's show. So you can find it by scrolling back in the timeline had some really cool chats about his time covering World Cups. He's a big Bristol City fan. He reveals whether he thinks they'll ever make it. To the premier league and he also told us about how qatar was his least favorite major tournament Ever, And he's covered a hell of a lot of them. So go and scroll back in the timeline to find that. If you hit subscribe or follow on your favourite podcast platform on Football Social Daily, you'll never miss an episode of this show again. So that's a good thing to do. If you like what we do, leave us a review as well. And you can join the chat in the Telegram group. We're always having a laugh in there, making fun of each other, especially Joel at the moment. He's getting no end of stick, bless him, being a Man United fan. The link to the Telegram group is in the description of this podcast, and so is all of the links to our social media pages. So, hopefully, you can join us on tomorrow's show, if not in the Telegram group. But from myself, Marley, and Joel, that's it for another episode of Football Social Daily. We'll speak to you on the next one. Bye for now. Football Social Daily is a voice Work sport production for the Sport Social Podcast Network.